0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at astrazeneca us.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about nutrition and exercise during cancer with registered dietitians Heidi Larson and Vanessa Salino. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Well, you
1: know, I know uh, my patients uh, who have cancer often assume that they have to stop exercising and they're so worried about nausea. Is this a common concern?
2: Oh, definitely, and it's definitely a myth. I think historically, um, many years ago, doctors used to encourage more rest, um, but now that dynamic is changing, and um, more and more we're finding out that exercise can be of benefit. you know, a lot of people think um, for exercise you need a minimum amount of 30 minutes a day Sure, every or day. why
1: bother? That's what I say.
2: Well, that's not the case. Oh,
1: there goes my <laughs> cover.
2: <laughs> so, so, yeah, really, um, you know, even with a cancer diagnosis, they're showing that you can um, maintain functional status much better, even if you're doing some leisurely walking. mm volunteer work um even light housekeeping can make a difference in your energy level um and you know of course we're all trying to you know maintain our weight or body mass index right so keeping moving maintains muscle and uh metabolism so there are many benefits to exercise And
3: I think a lot of times um, during treatment, patients are commonly fatigued. So Mm. um, and they think the rationale is, oh, I'll just rest. But it's actually more helpful to move a little bit to fight fatigue than be sedentary.
1: It's got to be kind of hard, though, right, to get yourself motivated for that.
3: Oh, sure. But um, even if it's just getting up between um, commercial breaks or Netflix binge watching and, you know, putting the laundry in the dryer, things like that.
1: Gotcha. 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 Well, I know I also sometimes have patients who come in with kind of baseline obesity and they think, well, at least I'll, you know, use this opportunity to lose weight. Is that the time to go on your crash diet?
3: I think that can be dangerous because a lot of times um, we're trying to lose weight in a healthy way, and when you're losing weight by not eating, you're actually losing your lean body mass, which is more detrimental to your overall health than the fat that we're trying to lose in theory.
1: Uh-huh.
2: What I typically tell patients is, you know, if they're just starting um, treatment, say chemotherapy or radiation, I said, let's, let's wait a few weeks and see how you're feeling from the treatment. Mm-hmm. If you're feeling well, you know, start adapting a healthier diet. You know, and inc- start increasing vegetables. You know, uh, you know, have more lean meats, healthy fats such as you know fish oil, olive oils. Cut out the butter. Um, those type of little steps can be beneficial.
1: Small changes.
2: Yeah, and you know, if somebody's losing a small amount of weight because they're eating healthier that never bothers us mm-hmm. and it can have benefits. What we don't want is for people to be losing weight because they're having nausea or loss of appetite. So we really try and individualize it to how the patient is feeling and you know their motivation level at the time.
1: Gotcha. And most patients can have Uh, pretty much expectations of nausea-free treatment, right? I mean, there's not the usual to expect to have nausea.
2: Yeah, I think the medications they have available now have really come a long way. So, you know, I think, um, you know, we definitely see a lot less vomiting and more um, if people have some nausea, it's more of like a discomfort in their stomach.
1: Queasiness or something.
2: Yeah, and... I think patients can sometimes make it worse for themselves by not eating. It's important mm. to keep something in your stomach to kind of keep that queasiness at bay.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that um, that the patients may have not mentioned to their doctors or nurse practitioners about sort of ongoing nausea complaints because they feel like, well— they're getting treated so they deserve it, but then they bring it up to you and you have to say, well, have you asked their doctor? Is that ever the case?
3: Um, not as common. No. I think the teams lately have been really good about um, continuing to ask questions, um, whether it's a nurse, whether it's the APRN or the PA, or physician assistant. Um, But it does come time where they'll disclose more information to one provider they feel more comfortable in, and um, that's why it's great to have a a multidisciplinary approach where we're kind of communicating with each other and we're always telling them to talk to their doctor and helping to optimize any particular medications that
1: they might need. Do all patients get seen by a nutritionist?
2: Uh, You know, all in the medical oncology infusion area, Mm -hmm. at least most, it is a consult service. Mm So we're consulted uh, um, for patients with the most need. Mm. Uh, And an example of that is somebody who presents with a lot of weight loss Mm -hmm. Um, or, um, you know, in other cases um, in the women's clinic for women who have concerns about, you know, gaining weight during treatment.
1: I see.
3: I also think some people um, tend to avoid us, those that might not be particularly experiencing symptoms, because they feel that we're going to be the food police and tell them that they can't eat things. But we're actually the opposite, and we're, <laughs> we're promoting food and nutrition um, and whatever that is. We're not going to say, never eat this. This is bad. Um, there are so many different foods that a person has as a choice.
1: Right. Well, what do you do for the patient who comes in you know, very depleted because of their cancer? has lost a lot of weight.
3: Well, it's important to look and see what their diet consists of, what their restrictions are, what their um, family support is, who's cooking at the home. Are they able to shop for themselves? Um, and it's, it might be a matter of making a small tweak. If they're only able to buy um, packages of um, frozen dinners or canned soups, but they need more calories, um, asking them to keep some condiments on hand, like olive oil or a little extra Parmesan cheese can sneak in more calories if that's what they need um, without giving them more work um, and effort to eat.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, we also try and look at the underlying cause of the weight loss. Sure. Sometimes it can be a loss of appetite. Sometimes it can be uh, difficulty swallowing right. that's, you know, physically presenting, uh, preventing them from eating. Um, or, you know, patients can have nausea, or if um, they've had surgery to, you know, say gastric surgery, that can uh, affect their eating. So it's very much individualized to the underlying cause of uh, weight loss.
1: Mm -hmm. And you sometimes use nutritional supplements, I imagine.
2: Oh, yes. You know, uh, there's really a lot of different uh, supplements on the market. But what I am finding more and more when people have family supports, a lot of times uh, families want to make something for them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some of the things we do is work with them to make sure they're getting uh, the nutrients they need and the shakes they're making it at home.
1: Great. And if somebody needs a nutritional supplement, um, does that get covered by their insurance? Do you know, oftentimes, or is it kind of you just go to the store and do your best with? get the booster? So not ensure. typically.
3: Um, yeah. The only, um, in the state of Connecticut, um, Medicaid might cover under certain circumstances, but Medicare won't. Um, so a lot of times they are paying out of pocket, which is why it's important to um, think about other options, things that might be a little cheaper, like the generic version of Ensure, if that's their preference, or mm-hmm. carnation instant breakfast packets can be mixed with milk, and those are fairly affordable.
1: Mm-hmm. But regular food, I guess, is going to be cheaper uh, if you can work with it, right, than these packaged formulas, I'm guessing. Is that true? Depends on what you're eating, or not Not always true?
2: It depends on the circumstances. In some circumstances, an oral nutrition supplement may be the only thing that the patient can
1: tolerate. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. No, I, I get that. But I mean, all things being equal, if you've got a family member who's really interested in learning how to cook and make nutritional shakes and stuff, yeah. Per- it,
2: it does typically work out to be a little bit cheaper.
1: But... Pr- Takes more work, of course.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's always good to focus on food
3: first if you can, and then um, resort to a supplement if there's um, the other op- options are got exhausted.
1: Gotcha. Patients are often uh, asking me about medical marijuana. And they seem to think that this is going to be the be all for their appetite. What have you guys had any experience with that?
3: Well, that's a not personally. Of not course. personally, no. <laughs> um, but that's an emerging trend. A lot of um, folks who have loss of appetite, and it's really hard to correct. because because... because there there might not be a medical cause for it. It's just a general disinterest in food. So the idea that they can do this recreational, that it's becoming a lot more socially acceptable through the country, um, they feel that that might be a cure-all. However, um, our challenge is that since it's not very well studied, because Mm. it's still a controlled substance and we can't test it, um, it's all subjective information as to whether it helps. And certainly, I think it's an individualized um, benefit, if any.
1: Yeah, well, I had recently a. patient whose uh family and he requested a prescription for medical marijuana, which we we provided and um and I saw them um i don't know sometime after and um the wife was very upset because he was still fatigued and he still wasn't eating and I said well um you know, uh, first of all, you know, what did you think would be different? He said, "Well, you know, he's been taking the marijuana." I said, "Well, you know, it's it doesn't, it's not well studied. It doesn't help everybody." And I said, "And of course, marijuana sedates you." So. Of course he's feeling more. Oh, really? Huh? So yeah, unfortunately. That's why all the, you know, stoners are sitting there like falling asleep. So it's interesting. I didn't know if you guys had any. I've also seen people who have responded.
2: You know, sometimes it. if people are dealing with the side effects that they don't want to, I suggest that they do it just before bedtime. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that does help them wake up in the morning with a better appetite. So at least they can eat a larger breakfast.
1: Right. There's also other appetite stimulants that are medically approved, right? Yes. And some of them work for some patients I know.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, there is um, the synthetic form, Marinol, but I... I haven't
1: had a lot of good success with that with I my patients. I haven't seen either. Uh, I use a lot of uh, progesterone or Megase uh, suspension, which I, I think works the best. Uh, some patients, you know, they've, there's medical reasons not to take it. And I know some doctors use some other things, so that's that's good to know. So what about the patient who hasn't, you know, it's kind of a, a couch potato lump, you know, and, you know, now you're giving them chemotherapy and say, okay, time to, like, go to the, see the personal trainer. And How does that work, you know, if you want them to get exercising?
3: I think at any point through treatment before or after moving is important. But um, if their goal, if they're not experiencing residual side effects and they want to get moving, um it's, it's kind of meeting them where they are. Um, our physical ther- Any physical therapy programs, good those who have limitations in moving, um, silver sneaker programs, um, light yoga are really great for someone who might not be ready to, you know, hit the treadmill and go to f- CrossFit and throw tires around.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, what about that other patient, the one who does go to CrossFit and throws tires around? Do, do we encourage them to keep going, or should they take it a little easy? Or what, it, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, we want to make sure they're getting good hydration, so they're not fatigued and um, at risk for falling. Um, but it's a matter of their overall performance status and their stamina. Um, and it's important to make sure they're eating appropriately, because if they're burning more and their you know their energy demands are up, um, they might not be eating well either, and they could get also some not directly um, evidence-based nutrition advice from other providers or folks at the gym who mean well but might not know the science of nutrition.
1: Right. So they really need to, first of all, talk to their practitioners, right, about whether keeping up that very intense exercise program is a good idea, right, mm-hmm. you know, besides any, any nutritional concerns that they may have, Right. Yeah, you know, I'm. You know, again, this is not very well studied from our perspective either, uh, in terms of uh, you know patients uh, continuing to exercise. I, you know, I guess we all assume that it's it's a pretty good idea, uh, but what is the evidence for exercise in 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 cancer that's emerging that you guys know about?
2: Well, the Yale Survivorship Program is currently conducting um, a lot of. Research into exercise. Mm-hmm. And um, that's ongoing, but they recently released a study in um, ovarian cancer patients that exercise did improve quality of life mm-hmm. and uh, maintain functional status. And these were patients who were being uh, actively treated. So it is uh, possible to you know, start a program even if you've never exercised before once you have that cancer diagnosis.
1: Well, that's great. I'm gonna to wanna to pick, pick up on that after our break, but right now we're going to take a short break for a Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about nutrition and exercise during cancer with Heidi Larson and Vanessa Salino.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments— Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Heidi and Vanessa, we've been discussing nutrition and exercise during cancer. Just prior to the break, you were mentioning um, that uh, the survivorship group here at Yale has been studying the impact of exercise on uh, quality of life in ovarian cancer patients, I guess. Um, I, I think they've also studied some, done some work in breast cancer as well. Is that true? Do we know?
2: Um, yes. they. Um, this is now out a few years, but they've... Um, Uh, did uh, something called the lean study Mm -hmm. where they looked at uh, nutrition intervention for breast cancer patients. Uh, And really the goal was, uh, or one of the goals was to uh, prevent weight gain, which can be uh, pretty common in breast cancer patients long-term and is associated with poorer outcomes Mm. uh, when women gain too much weight. So it's a huge challenge um, that women with this diagnosis have to face because, um, you know, they're often um, thrown into menopause, which changes your metabolism. A lot of things, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, again, where traditionally um, people focused on, you know, preventing weight loss during active treatment, they've discovered that it's more important in this subgroup – the breast cancer population, to really just focus on um, maintaining weight, uh, maintaining activity level, and, um, you know, adapting a healthier diet.
1: Mm -hmm. It seems like you've got enough on your mind just dealing with your cancer. It seems like a lot to have to worry about what you're eating and whether you're getting exercise.
3: Yeah, but I think it's a good sense of empowerment. You you don't have much control over your treatment plan or your disease state in so many ways, but nutrition is one place where you can control what you're putting in your mouth and what you're doing, um, and, and that's a way a person can take back their outcomes and really improve mm. their survivorship, I think. Mm.
1: Are there any special foods that help people deal with certain side effects or anything like that? Do you have any special tricks for patients who have, I don't know, against like, you know, difficulty swallowing or appetite problems? Any, any special hints you guys have?
2: Yeah, I mean— I've... The hints really depend on the uh, side effect. And actually, um, a lot of my best tips come from patients themselves. Uh-huh. So, for example, uh, you know, for patients dealing with nausea, who are very sensitive to smells, a patient once told me they just took peppermint oil, mm-hmm. put it on their wrists, and whenever they passed a offending smell, they would, you know, smell their wrist to kind of cover up that smell that was nauseating to hmm. them. So that's one of uh, you know the better tips I've gotten. And people come back and say that they f- you know thought it was effective.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: Ginger has been shown to be effective for uh, nausea. Uh, so of course, you need to use that in conjunction with your anti-nauseans. Sure. But um, you know, nowadays, it's difficult to find ginger ale with real ginger in it. I
1: was going to say, it <laughs> was like an old remedy when I was a kid uh, to take some ginger ale if you're nauseated. Also, Coke syrup was a big deal in, back in those days.
2: Yeah. Nowadays, you can find uh, crystallized ginger candies right. that you could take. My
1: wife's favorite.
2: And uh, Or you could take a ginger tea. Uh-huh. Or you can just pick up uh, ginger, root ginger root right? at the grocery store and, uh, you know, it simmer it. Or some it and some water. Make huh. your own tea.
1: And do people like that? I mean, does, does oh, it help do. people? Oh, they do.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I like ginger.
2: There's no harm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not going to hurt. I was recently in southern India, and we toured a uh, – it was like a show garden, but a place that raises herbs for the uh, South Indian Ayurvedic. Kind of medicine, and they, um, you know, the, the guide, you know, was very knowledgeable, and she was pointing out all these different things, uh, you know, that were used for different things, and uh, you know, I don't know how effective it all was, but it was certainly interesting. It was a whole different kind of herbal mindset, but and certainly ginger was ginger was a big one, turmeric was a big one, cardamom. They do a lot of cardamom.
3: Yeah, fresh herbs are a really good way um, to enhance cooking, um, certainly with taste changes. Mm-hmm. Um, using playing around with some fresh mint or basil, um, even if it's flavoring water with some basil and strawberry, um, it can really help change the taste um, for some people. Yeah. Cranberry extract, um, concentrate juice is another good way. If like, someone's having taste changes and their water is kind of tasting funky, which is common, um, putting a little splash in that's a good way to kind of fo- refocus on getting good hydration as well.
1: It's so interesting that, you know, these changes that happen in the taste sensation, I don't know if it's from the tongue or whether it's in the brain or whatever, but some spices or whatever really come through and somehow either aren't affected or it's it's quite interesting.
3: Yeah, I had um, one patient who two years after radiation therapy for oral cancer needed to take fresh wasabi before every meal just to kind of awaken his palate. Yep, and that worked for him.
1: Like the real, like he would take the real horseradish root? Correct. Or? Yep. Wow.
3: Just to kind of give it a little bit of a zest.
1: And uh, like breakfast even, huh?
3: Exactly. Oh,
1: <laughs> I like my sushi with wasabi, but, and I like my gefilter <laughs> fish with horseradish, but I, it's not a steady diet. That's, a, that's so interesting. So are, are patients coming up with this stuff every day? Do they get on, you know, support groups or internet groups or their chat rooms?
3: Well, the internet's a funny friend because... <laughs> right.
1: Be careful what you read there, <laughs> right? Exactly.
3: Um, as dietitians, we get a lot of focus coming to us with um, Dr. Google's information that um, might not always be accurate. So it's important to kind of refocus them to attend support groups and, and point them to some uh, more credible sources on the internet as well.
1: Yeah. but that's Because there are some, right? There are some reasonable sources. Oh, absolutely. That are, and, and of course, if I would think that if a patient comes up with something and you're not familiar with it, even if it looks credible, you might refer them back to their practitioner and say, well, make sure this is okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's...
2: I think that's an important point. If anyone's considering taking herbals or supplements, it's important to realize that they can sometimes interact with your treatment right? and sometimes decrease the effectiveness or um, cause other side effects. So whatever you're considering taking, make sure you t- uh, talk to your practitioner about it and make sure that it's safe in your specific situation.
1: I'm also impressed at how much money some of these patients, some patients really spend on some of these supplements. I mean, I know when, if I go to a general nutrition store or whatever, for I mean, I don't do that very often, but when I do, it's, it's, the stuff isn't cheap in particular. I and mean, when I did buy some stuff at that Ayurvedic shop in India, <laughs> there was a magic weight loss thing that didn't work, but I thought it was worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> they're not cheap
3: yeah it's it's very common um it's a major business and it's um you know It sells nicely. You know, oh, take this pill. It's It's a quick solution. Um, But it's no one food supplement um, can either can cause cancer nor can it cure it. So I think that's important to know when you're thinking about supplements. Um, The only time we really recommend supplements, which is proven, is if there's a nutrition deficiency there. And that requires, you know, lab work and, you know, kind of really talking to someone. Mm
1: -hmm. What about the way we prepare our food? So, um, you know, the old days people didn't like vegetables because they were overcooked and then we went to the al dente thing and do you find that cancer patients is there any general recommendations again it probably depends on what their oral health hygiene is and stuff but fresh vegetables cooked vegetables fresh fruits cooked fruits canned fruits what what seems to work
2: you know it's interesting cuz there's a food trend lately that a lot of patients have been asking about and it's the raw foods movement oh right So and nowadays you can go, you know, into New York City and find dozens of raw food restaurants. Yeah,
1: I don't understand that appeal at all.
2: So the thought is you can um, achieve, you know, best nutrient absorption through raw foods. But the reality is, is that we can absorb, um, you know, some nutrients better from raw foods, but then other nutrients better when they're cooked. So, for example, with a tomato— But, you know, when it's raw, you get more vitamin C. It's
1: delicious, if it's ripe. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And and if you have a cooked tomato, so tomato sauce, you actually uh, have benefits um, of lycopene, which is better absorbed from cooked tomatoes. Mm. So the best thing to do is use a combination of raw and cooked foods. If you're cooking foods, um, the most... um, the best way to do so is through steaming. It conserves the nutrients the most. Mm-hmm. And um, not far behind that is uh, sautéing in an oil. Huh. And sometimes, you know, adding that little bit of fat can help uh, with uh, nutrient absorption.
1: Got it. Well, what about oven roasting? That's my favorite approach to vegetables lately. Not good?
2: So, uh, um, so it's, really, uh, it's really a time and temperature thing. So you'll be losing some nutrients. Um but gaining others. <laughs> so. any,
3: and I think it's important to focus on any time you're eating a colored diet by way of fruits and vegetables. That's always a good choice. So I think overthinking like, oh, is this better or worse? I think just eat the vegetable and enjoy it. Um, you know, I
1: love me some roasted Brussels sprouts, for example. Oh, they're I, good. Yeah. Yeah, and beets, well we won't what well, we won't get going. I, I steam okay. as well. I mean, you know, truth be not, it's also so easy to roast them. You just, you know, pop them right in the oven and don't worry about them.
2: Have you tried ribboning um Brussels sprouts and making a salad out of
1: them i've eaten it that way do you like it that way yeah it's It's good it's kind of like like coleslaw really or it's cabbage
2: well you do a little lemon and olive oil and then throw in some nuts and dried cranberries it's really good
1: oh that sounds great (laughs) (laughs) super yummy i was traveling in eastern europe this summer and you know they use a lot of buckwheat and other things that we don't we don't see so much
2: i think that's a great point um you know I, there's kind of an anti-wheat movement in the United States, and I think it is pro- a problem where we do hone in on one food, and there's a lot of great uh, grains out there that you can uh, try. But um, So instead of t- totally avoiding wheat, which can be beneficial, you can just add in other um Uh, So farro is a great one.
3: I
1: love farro, yeah. Quinoa, which is really a I guess. Barley
2: is even
3: good. It's very simple.
1: I I like barley. Mm -hmm. Barley and farro are kind of similar. And don't forget buckwheat. Buckwheat's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not wheat. So one of the things that we know, um, you know, is that food is such an important part of, like, existence, right? The whole social thing about food and everything. I imagine... You know, when people have a hard time eating, you know, it it's a, increases, must increase isolation and.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, especially around holiday time when um, friends and family tend to want to push food as a source of love so I think it's important to find new family traditions and kind mm-hmm. of set your own boundaries if you you know you're not feeling well and you're at family's function and you know Aunt Muriel loves to push that second portion of pasta on you um, you know make excuses to kind of help serve so that you are in control of your own portions mm-hmm. um, find a new activity like family game night mm-hmm. something that mo- might not be as food focused
1: mm-hmm That's a good idea. Um, do you recommend that people sort of try to participate or really just go with how they're feeling?
2: Well, I think, uh, Vanessa brings up a good point that it can really, food can be a source of conflict for families. Uh And, um, and I've, I've seen it over and over where, uh, the wife might be pushing the husband to eat meals. And I think, uh, as a caregiver, you want to provide support, and food is the one, one of the main ways you can do it. But I think it's important for caregivers to realize that, um, you know, they can only do so much. So they can provide the food, but it's probably better not to be pushing it.
1: Yeah, I hear this a lot, like, telling me he needs to eat. <laughs> it's like, well, of course we all need to eat, but, you know, if he doesn't feel like eating, we've got to think of some other ways as well.
3: Yeah, and I think it's stressful for the caregiver as well because they're, they're, oh, let me go try this. And they run to the market and they purchase this. And then they have all these ice creams on hand and they end up eating it. And then they come to us and say, oh, I gained 20 pounds. He needs it. Um, So it's just, you know, sometimes it's okay to eat routine. You know, this is what I expect to have for breakfast. It might not be that much. And then I'll try another small frequent meal later. so it's a good. It's important not to have um, extra stress around eating because it is so closely tied to our emotions and yeah. um, how we feel as human beings.
0: Heidi Larson and Vanessa Salino are registered dietitians. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale. and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.